The Lord be with you. There's a really good scene in the classic movie from 1982, Conan the Barbarian, where Conan the Barbarian is feasting in a tent full of battle-hardened warriors. And one of the generals turns to Conan and says, Conan, what is best in life? They're making revelry. He can, he can get real loud. And Conan replies, To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women. Now, I'm not here to debate the finer points of Conan's personal philosophy of what is best in life. I mean, his personal philosophies go, if, if you are a, a bloodthirsty warlord, that ain't bad. And with uh, apologies to any barbarians who might be watching, it is safe to say that maybe there are a few things lacking with Conan's personal philosophy of what is best in life. The question, though, what is best in life, is one of the great quandaries of history and so many minds through the centuries in art and song and philosophical works and religious texts making sense of what is best in life, naming the ways that a life is well spent. Apostle Paul uses language just like this at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 in the lead up to his famous love chapter. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Among other things, the life of Christian faith is a way of charting our path and fighting our way as God's creatures. We get to be participants in the community of God's redeemed people, agents of God's purpose in the world. So I think it's safe to say that the life of faith is a way of saying this is a pursuit of what is best in life. It's one that calls us to the more excellent way of Jesus, the best way to find our way as people on this planet and followers of the Jesus way. It can be a tricky thing, though, because sometimes Jesus' description of what is best in life is really, really strange and difficult for us. It's even harder to live out. And sometimes it doesn't sound very much like something that is best in life at all. Like when Jesus says something like, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. (coughs) This is what is best in life? The the path of suffering and self-denial? Taking up a cross? The tool of terror and brutal torture and murder? What is best in life? Considering the realities of life as the church, what exactly is it supposed to look like? How is this supposed to work itself out? What is it supposed to cost us? What should it cost us? Isn't the path of Christ supposed to be an abundant life, like we're told in John's Gospel? Or is it the way of a cross and self-sacrifice? 
In Matthew 16, Peter's day got going on a really high note. With his surprising answer to the Messiah question, which Ryan talked about last week. And that answer earned him a whole bunch of disciple points. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, and on this, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The small town boy, this impulsive sort of fellow like Peter, is blessed with the holy purposes of the church. The keys to the kingdom, named as an agent of God's work in the world, prevailing against the forces of evil. But that was last week's sermon. And just a few verses later, Peter is in for another surprise. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Hearing Jesus' disturbing view of things, St. Peter, the newly appointed rock of the church, saw an opportunity to exercise some of his new administrative and pastoral duties. Peter took Jesus aside. At least he could try and talk a little bit of sense into an obviously confused Messiah. (laughs) This is some crazy talk, Jesus. Why are you saying things like this? This isn't encouraging or inspiring, and I think you're freaking some people out, because who would want to join a dangerous enterprise like this? We're supposed to be on the winning team, right? The victorious ones. And all this talk about falling at the hands of violent religious men is off-putting. It's a real downer, Jesus. And I've been thinking, maybe we could talk to one of those marketing guys. I think I've got a few cards. Let's make some calls. But Jesus furiously turns on his heel and absolutely blasts Peter. I mean, can you think of a nastier rebuke, a more devastating response than, get back behind me, Satan? In a few moments, Peter goes from super church leader man, the foundation, the rock, but here on the first day of the job, He's called out as a tool of the devil, named a serious problem for Jesus, an obstacle even. In Peter's defense, it does seem like the one with all the power and the authority under heaven may well be eligible for some free passes. Redemption of the world, sure, but Maybe not without the mess and the pain and the trouble and the annoyance and the violence that we normally associate with world history and the human condition. Can't the miracle worker maybe do a few miracle workers and save himself? But here's where Peter is missing the critical bit. Christ in the world is an all-the-way-in deal. 
made of pure humanity. Not Jesus, sort of human. Not Jesus, mostly human even. Jesus, the truly human one. The one who shows us what it really is to be human. For as long as the church has been the church, as long as gatherings of believers have been sent out to follow the Jesus way in the world, we have had our work cut out for us. Every generation finds itself in Peter's shoes. Amazed and blessed and and grateful and astonished to be invited to be a part of such a people. Gifted with communities to lead even. Little corners of the world to take care of. And yet we are often so humbled by our failures, heartbroken by our lack of clarity and vision. We are still grateful to be God, called God's children, and yet we are so easily entangled, falling short and becoming the obstacle, the impediment. Every generation of Christ's church is a fresh expression of the same struggling community, learning and relearning how to follow Jesus into the world. We are always figuring out how to do this. The thing is, following Jesus always looks like human beings. Covering ground. Breaking a sweat. Shedding tears. Sometimes even having their blood spilt. These are holy labors. It looks like showing up. It looks like loyalty to the God-given worth of every person. And here's the hard part. There isn't a free pass for the church either. Following Christ into the world is an all-the-way-in sort of deal because we follow the truly human one. But there is more. In calling us to follow this human way, Jesus is also calling us back from the brink of our own soul's destruction, from the dangerous lies and deceptions of the gods of this age, from the hollow pursuits of our own vanity. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? These might be some of the most sobering words in Scripture. We contend with a chorus of voices, assuring us that the hoarding of our resources, the maintenance of our comforts, our beauty and our pleasure and our accomplishments represent the most excellent way. Even worse, too often, I think, those same voices are religious voices, assuring us that God wants his winners to enjoy a sort of superstar life. Friends, these lies are sweet poison. Perhaps then we might be grateful for the many mentors in our culture. And I'm not talking here about the wise ones and the teachers among us. I'm talking about the anti-mentors. Cautionary characters and instructive lifestyles. People who show up on the daily feed. Examples of the forms of personality and world leaders and public figures 
Lives spent and spilled out for wealth and fame and power and beauty. So much of what passes for the best life is toxic and destructive and soul-destroying. How many times have we witnessed those who seem to have gained everything crumbling as their world falls apart around them? The one who invites us to follow calls us to really live, mindful of the days we spend on this earth. We are not called to be insulated or anesthetized. As Amanda's prayer said today, we are called to put our heart out in the world. We are not called to be numb to the pain of the world. We're called to be alive to God's mercies and wide awake to the needs of our brothers and our sisters. The life of a disciple is made up of so many precious moments, but none of them are free from risk. Peacemakers will find themselves in dangerous situations. Friends will carry the heavy burdens of other friends. Allies and advocates make powerful enemies. But we get to be the church sometimes wandering, often failing, always human. A gathered and sent people marking out our days with hope, seeking to live with attention and purpose, what Eugene Peterson famously calls a long obedience in the same direction. The church is a work of practice, practice for holy opportunities that we are afforded day after day. This is how God gets things done. This is how Jesus lives in the world today. And this is the life that Christ invites you to. As we change seasons and enter into a new time of worship and life together, what are the ways that we as a community are being called to follow Jesus in the world? What sorts of people-shaped work and worship are you being invited to right now? I pray that we may have the imagination and the courage to listen to the Spirit in pursuit of this more excellent way. Thanks be to God.